You know, I'm still learning English and still working on it. Uh, but I've been introduced to a little Spanish every now and then. I at least know how to order in Spanish. I mean, I know a taco from an enchilada. I mean, <laughs> I can't spell all of them, but I can, I can order them. Now, many of you know uh, that we are now operating a Christian school at Mission Springs, K through 3. And we're going to add a grade each year until we have K, pre-K through 8. And part of the regular curriculum, we have music and art and Spanish. We start Spanish in kindergarten. And first, second, third grade, our goal is for children, by the time they get to the eighth grade, to be fluent in conversational Spanish. You learn to speak a language by learning to speak it. And then you find out later uh, how to get the grammar right and all of that. Most of us learned how to speak English before we ever took a course in English, right? So we're going to teach these children. Well, out at the school the other day, I'm out there every Thursday because we have chapel. We have chapel every day. But at uh, 10.15 on Thursday, we have a longer chapel. And any of you are invited to want to come. It's a wonderful experience. Well, one day, one little girl had a headache, and she, she mentioned that she had a headache. She wasn't feeling real well. And a little, a little boy in the class, a little black boy whose parents are par, uh, pastor an Assemblies of God church, this little boy who's been learning Spanish now for about two weeks or three weeks, uh, he doesn't grow up in a home where they speak Spanish. He patted the little girl on the shoulder and said, Provasita. How many of you know what provasita means? Poor little girl, poor little girl. And he then went on to explain provasito means poor little boy. He, and I've learned from that little kid in first grade something about, something about Spanish. I know very little. I took a course in conversational Spanish, and uh, the teacher suddenly started having other engagements, so it didn't, it didn't work out. But I'm, I'm still working on English. I really am. I was an English major in college. And, but you know, the language you grow up hearing and the words you hear, the culture in which you are nurtured has a lot to do with the way you pronounce words, right? Right. I still have trouble, and I have to think of it consciously when I'm speaking because sometimes I'm thinking ahead and I forget to say get instead of get. How many of you have the same problem? Get the ball. Get the dog out of here. Go get the car. It's G-E-T. It's what? Get. Okay. Well, I'm still working on that. If you hear me slip, you just kind of do this. Time out, Buckner. That means you go back and get a little course in English. I also have a, word, a problem with the word can't. I can't do that. Well, that's not the way. It, that's not right, is it? What is the right pronunciation? I can't do that. I can't do it. So I'm still working on my English. I had a friend, a roommate in college uh, from Texas, naturally, from Fort Worth, where they know very little English. Uh, <laughs> one day he said, you know, I'm going to go get me some new paints. I said, what are you painting? You don't take art. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to go get some new paints, some new, new trousers, some new slacks. I said, you mean you're going to go get some new pants? He said, yeah, that's what I said. I'm going to go get some new pants. <laughs> Doesn't make any difference. Sometimes, how often we may hear the correct pronunciation, we have to relearn some words. Now, the same thing is true with the vocabulary of God. 
and with the language of God. Because we grow up, it's not our fault, it's not anybody's fault, but we grow up nurtured by a certain concept about God in our homes, in our home churches, the socio-religious atmosphere in which we grow up, the society, the religious atmosphere of that society has a lot to do with the way we think about God, the way we think about Christ, the way we think about miracles. All of those words have an emotional meaning for us before they have an intellectual meaning for us. And so what I want to talk about for a few moments this morning is the language of God. What language does God speak? Well, God speaks in a word. In a word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And all things were made by him. Without him was anything made that was made. The word of God, the living, embodied personal, infallible, inerrant word of God is Jesus Christ himself. He is God's word. He's what God's saying to us. So we need to listen to what Jesus is saying because that's God speaking to us. We need to watch how Jesus acts and what he does and his attitude toward other people because that's God's way of acting. That's God's way of thinking. That's God's way of relating to other people. Now, we have a tendency sometimes to think that because the the, uh, letters of the Apostle Paul uh, follow the Gospels in chronological order, that somehow they take precedence over the Gospel. Not so. The Apostle Paul was inspired by God, but he was not a perfect man. He was not a little Jesus. He was used by God to communicate how the Christian life works. But if you want to get back to the source of the Christian life, the basic pattern of the Christian life, you get back to the Gospels. You get back to Jesus and how he acted and the way he related and what he said and what he did. Don't have time to touch on everything, of course, that grows out of this living word and everything the living word said and everything the living word did, but it spoke volumes. And it will help us understand better, I hope and pray, the vocabulary of God, which boils down to one word, and that is love. God is love. And if you have any doubt about it, look at Jesus. He is the physical personification of God's word. The word of God is love. In the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark, from which I read a moment ago, uh, the first story that you read there is about this paralytic who was lowered down into the room from above. They tore the roof off and let him down into the room. It was so crowded they couldn't get him in. And Jesus was there. And the man just descended on this couch there. And there he was in front of Jesus. You know the first thing Jesus said to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. I didn't even hear him ask. Maybe he couldn't ask. He was paralyzed. Maybe he couldn't even speak. But the first word of God is your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, Go to the seventh chapter of the uh, Gospel of Luke. A woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears in this house full of religious uh, fanatics and Pharisees and judgmental people. And here was this woman of the street, this prostitute, there weeping at Jesus' feet, kissing his feet, drying his feet with the hair of her head, and then pouring perfume on them. She didn't say an audible word. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. 
Go to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. Here's a man born blind, and Jesus heals him. Jesus says, go down to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself, wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam, and then come seeing. And he went down there, and he, he took Jesus by faith. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know him. But he acted upon that word, that word, go down to the pool of Siloam. He went down there, washed his eyes, and he was made whole. And some, they got into a big argument about it. Read it in the ninth chapter of John. It's a fascinating story. They, they said, oh, you weren't blind. You were just faking it. They accused him of all sorts of things. And he said, well, who, they said, who did it? He said, I don't know. I don't know who did it. He said, well, you're bound to know who did it. We said, I don't know who did it, but he's bound to be a prophet or he couldn't have done something like that. And they just jumped all over him and said, well, he's not a prophet. If he were a prophet, we would know him. They called his parents in. They said, was he born blind? Is this a, you know, they, they, they doubted this guy. And the parents said, well, he's old enough. Ask him. They were kind of afraid of that religious bunch. And so they, they kind of waffled on it. And, and they threw him out of the temple. He was in the temple worshiping because of the first time in his life he could see the building. And he went in there to worship. And these Pharisees were so angry at him because he'd been healed and he didn't even know who did it, that they threw him out. And Jesus found him. Let me tell you, when you get thrown out of church or you get thrown out of a Christian group or you get thrown out of anything, Jesus is there to meet you. And he's there to pick you up. And Jesus came up and identified himself to the man. The man saw because Jesus healed him and he acted upon the word of God. So he was made to see. So here's the first lesson in Jesus' vocabulary, in God's language. That God has a love big enough for anybody. And he has a fellowship big enough for everybody. Now you read that next story in the second chapter of Mark, and I read it to you earlier, the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. You cannot imagine how detested these tax collectors were. These were Jews who had sold out to the Romans. They were working for the Romans and they were taxing the people of God. He lost every friend he had. He's making a lot of money. He was doing good, but his, the Jews detested him because he was a quizzing. He was a turncoat. He was a Benedict Arnold. He was a traitor to the people of God. And Jesus said, come follow me. And this tax collector who was detested by everybody so, okay, I'll do it. He acted on the word and he got up and followed Jesus. And then Matthew threw a big party. And the only people he could invite were fellow tax collectors and other sinners, it says. You will notice when you read that, as I read it to you a moment ago, the word sinners is in parenthesis. Now, let me point out the sinners because it's very important to what I want to say in just a few moments. To the ultra-religious group of the day, the Pharisees, and don't think that they existed 2,000 years ago and that they do not have uh, progeny still with us today. Their successors are still with us. Make no doubt, have no doubt about it. They are here. They are here in big numbers. And so here, here, was, here were these Pharisees, and they thought that if you were not a Pharisee, you were a sinner, and you were going to hell. All Gentiles. Sinners, all tax collectors, sinners. If you were blind, you were a sinner. That's the reason. They asked the question once, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. 
Neither one. So in that day, and you know what? You can still hear it sometimes on television or radio. If you're poor, it's because you're a sinner. If you're sick, it's because you've sinned. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. If your mind doesn't work right, if you have some emotional problems, you're a sinner. If you're not an Orthodox Jew, you were a sinner. We don't understand that, but let me tell you, I can't get it across strongly enough. If you're a woman, you can't even go into the temple. You have a women's court there. You have the court of the Gentiles. You're sinners. If you're poor, if you're weak, if you're sick, if you're blind, if you're broke, you're a sinner. You're sunk. So Jesus comes along and he does something. He forgives everybody and the result in the life of some is what I want to call negative repentance. I can't think of any better definition for it. Negative repentance. Now, when I do something that I know is wrong, I'm conscious of it, I need to repent of that. And I, I may first feel remorse. I, I feel badly. Now, I want to point out, you need to know this. Remorse is not the same thing as repentance. You can feel badly about something, but that's not repentance. The Bible says godly sorrow produces repentance. But some people are always in remorse, always in remorse. The word repentance means to change your mind, to change your act, to change your attitude. It doesn't just mean to say, oh, I did that, I did that, and oh, I'm going to pray and pray and pray. Stop it. Let that motivate you in a new direction. So all of us need at times to go through that experience, uh, and I guess all of us have, I certainly have, of negative repentance. Lord, I said something I shouldn't have said. I thought something, I, and I don't want to do that. Lord, help me, and I ask you to forgive me. He says you're already forgiven, and the reason you are caring about your behavior is because you have experienced my love and my forgiveness. But I want to point out something that may be new to you to some of you. There is also a positive repentance that Jesus is here revealing to us. He's saying to all of these people who were being told, listen, this great majority of people in Jesus' day had been told by the religionists of their day that they were worthless. They were sinners. And so these people grew up thinking that they were horrible. They grew up thinking they were worthless. They grew up thinking, well, I'm just doomed forever. And Jesus comes along and he says to them, repent. In other words, change your attitude about your feelings of worthlessness. I care about you. I'm the great God of the ages and I care about you. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up for the, that the everlasting doors that you may come in. Lift up your head. You're not worthless. You're a child of God, potentially. You are loved by God. You're worth something. You're worth something. In the eyes of God, 
regardless of what society has said about you, however much they may have put you down, however much you may have grown up in a church where you were made to feel every Sunday that you were the worst sinner that ever lived. Listen, there are times when we need to repent negatively and there are other times when I think a lot of Christians need to repent positively and accept who they are by the grace of God. Lift up your heads. O ye gates and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that what? That the King of glory may come in. Positive repentance. Jesus also, second lesson, same chapter, third chapter, they came to Jesus talking about fasting. He said, why don't, your, why don't your followers fast like all of us religious folks do? And uh, Jesus explained it. You can read it beginning in the 18th verse. But he gets down there to the 21st verse and he says this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now listen. What is he saying there? He is saying that his love cannot be contained in old forms. He not only comes to give us new inner life, he comes to give us new outer life. He not only comes with the living wine of the Spirit of God, the intoxicating presence of the living God within us, he not only comes to give us life, he begins to give us a new form of life, a new expression of life. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. He comes with new wine and he puts it into us and makes us new wineskins. This love cannot be contained in old forms. He not only changes our hearts, he changes our mind. He changes our attitude. He changes our way of living. He he changes our external behavior. Our internal attitude, our external behavior. New wine, new wineskins. Now, that's... This is a word for the church too. The church, not just this church, I'm talking about the church generally. We need, as the church, to repent of putting new wine in old wineskins. There's a tendency to do that. There's an even worse tendency, and that is to put old wine into new wineskins. Now that's sort of a flip side. Think about it a moment. There are churches that may look big and beautiful and have tremendous crowds. And they've got external impressive facilities. But what they teach and what they preach is old wine stuff. Old legalism. Old Pharisaism. Old judgmentalism. Old spiritual superiority. They're putting old wine into new wineskins. They may have marvelous external facilities, but if you go there and it's empty, you can walk out the door and write Ichabod over it, God hath departed. The church, this church, every church must be in a constant spirit of inner renewal and external reaction to make a difference in the world in which we live. 
God wants to keep pouring new wine into our lives and creating new wineskins of ministry that will reach out and make a difference in other people's lives. We don't want to be spilled on the floor, putting new wine into old wineskins, and it all just fall away to nothing. We need to be constantly revising our approach to being God's people in the world. And how do you do it? To reach people for Christ. New wine, old wineskins. And then one last story that's in the third chapter. Uh, Jesus says some things about the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You don't have any idea how revolutionary that was. Oh man, was that revolutionary in Jesus' day. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He went into the synagogue and there was a man there with a shriveled hand. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. That's the notice. From Friday night, 6 o'clock to Saturday night, 6 o'clock. That was the time. That was the Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath. Sunday's the Lord's day. Sabbath was yesterday. Today's the Lord's day. We don't worship on the Sabbath. We worship on the Lord's day. So anyway, we'll talk about that another time. But that's, that's true. Uh, they, they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up here in front of everybody. Come on up here. Okay. He came up there with a shriveled hand. Then Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, this crowd I was talking about, ultra, ultra religious fundamentalists, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? This is Jesus speaking. To save life or to kill? They remained silent. Didn't say a word. He, Jesus, looked around at them in anger. You think Jesus didn't have emotions? Read the New Testament. He had emotions. He was angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Now listen, Jesus was not angry because of their attitude toward him. Jesus was angry at the attitude they had which said you cannot heal a man, you cannot do something good for a person until the clock goes a little further. These people were willing to impose upon that man continuing suffering in the name of religion, God forbid. And he was angry at that attitude that when he imprisoned this person in this shriveled atmosphere, in this shriveled uh, condition, that they would say, okay, wait until 6 o'clock tonight and you can heal him. Jesus said, stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it forth and he was healed. And the people started exclaiming. And the Pharisees, you know what they did? They didn't rejoice that the man was healed. You know what they did? They started plotting. It's right here in the read the third chapter of Mark. They started plotting how to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. What Jesus is saying here, third thing and last, that he has a love that will not wait. It's now. It's for you now. It's for us today. He has a love that's not going to be postponed until the time when he comes back. Not going to be postponed when we do that. His love is available to us. His power is available in each of us right now because he has a love that will not wait. Stretch forth your heart. Accept it. Years ago in the late uh, 60s, we were in 
Eastern Europe during the worst days of communism. And we were in uh, what was in Czechoslovakia. It was in one country. Been divided since, as you may know. We'd been in Prague, and then we went down uh, driving in a big bus, and uh, we stopped at a town there, uh, and they sang. Our kids, uh, the Sound Foundation was along, these 20 high school students and about 20 adults in our group, and uh, they were invited to sing in this beautiful Catholic church in Bruno, uh, Czechoslovakia. And then we went to Bratislava, which was the second largest city in Czechoslovakia at the time. Still is. Well, it's the largest city in that part of uh, Slovakia today. And uh, we were going to have a service. We wanted to have a service in the church there, the Baptist church there. But they couldn't get permission to have a service. Now, if you've been to Eastern Europe during those days, and I was there many, many times, in those days, you couldn't have an unscheduled service. You couldn't go just say, hey, we're going to have a service next Thursday night. You had to be registered with the government. They wanted to know when you were going to meet and where you were going to meet. Why? Because they wanted somebody there to hear what was being said. And they wanted somebody there to see who was there. Those people were called plants. They were there to see what was going on. So you could, it was illegal to have an unregulated service. So they tried to have a service for us in Bratislava. The pastor said he asked for permission. They wouldn't give it. So a number of the people in our group, adults, we got together and said, look, that's not right. Why don't we do this? Why don't we lease the ballroom here in this hotel where we're staying and let's invite all the members of that church, about 150 or 200 of them, to come to the ballroom and we'll have a service. And they said, great. We talked to the pastor and they said, oh, it'd be wonderful. It'd be marvelous. So we went to the folks at the hotel. Well, of course, they were all for it. You know, they said, yeah, we'll do it. So we had a couple of 300 people in this great big ballroom in this, in this hotel. And the pastor was there and the kids sang. They, well, while they were singing, people came in from the lobby. People came in, cooks and waiters and waitresses came in out of the kitchen, standing around the wall, listening. And Martha would sing with them on occasions. And I leaned over to the man who was our interpreter, Leslie, and I, that's not his name, but that's what we called him, Leslie. I said, Leslie, tell the pastor, as soon as the kids are through singing, for him to get up and preach. They don't need to hear me. I don't need to be translated. I'll just say a word of greeting, and then you get up, and you just tell him just cut loose and preach. Well, he did. I don't know what he preached, but I know God used him to speak to that crowd. A lot of people who'd never heard the gospel, I'm sure, heard it that day in that ballroom in that church. Put new wine into old wineskins? No. Put new wine into new wineskins. Look for new ways to communicate the gospel in our world. Well, let me tell you what happened to that church. Not long after that, that church was demolished by the government. They bulldozed it to the ground. They wanted to build a high-rise there. So the people in that church said, well, where can we meet? They kept asking and asking and asking, where can we meet? They finally relented and said, well, there's an old shack of a building that we've used for equipment uh, in the cemetery. You can have an old building in the middle of the cemetery. They said, we'll take it. They took it. They remodeled it. They fixed it up. And they changed the name of it. They changed the name to the Church of the Resurrection in the middle of a cemetery. Well, everybody in town knew where the cemetery was. 
So you could say, well, I want you to come to church. Where is it? In the middle of the cemetery. What's the name of it? The Church of the Resurrection. And I talked to John David Hopper the other day about this, and he said, that church is flourishing to this day. The Church of the Resurrection in the middle of a cemetery. Now listen. Do you know you and I are living in the middle of a cemetery? You know, Buckner, I'll go outside. We've got parking lots and buildings and so forth. We're right in the middle of a cemetery. What's the largest city in the world? Population-wise, what's the largest city? Sao Paulo, Brazil? Shanghai? Tokyo? No, I don't know. Put all three of those together. The largest city in the world is the city of the dead. They're all around us. Millions and millions and millions. And someday we will be one of them unless we have joined the church of the resurrection. And when you do, death is swallowed up in victory. Teachers in our, public school teachers in our church told me this story a few years ago. A little boy named Christopher, five years of age, in special ed in special ed. And he, they don't know how he got over the fence or around the fence to the next door where there was a swimming pool. The little five-year-old Christopher got over there and he took off his shoes. It's a sad story and a sad picture for me to even tell it. He took off his shoes and he got in the water and he had on a big old coat and he drowned. And he had some friends, two friends at school. One was named Angel and the other one was named Stephen. And they wanted to comfort Christopher's mother. So they wrote her, the teachers helped them write a Valentine card to the teachers, to the parents from the teachers did the writing for the children. And then the two little guys said this to the teacher. Angel said, you know, he never, he never got to read and he never learned to spell. And Stephen said, yeah, he's in heaven and he didn't even know his colors and his numbers. My friend, listen. You may not be able to read or spell, and you may not know your numbers and colors, philosophically or theologically, but let me tell you, you'll be in heaven if you join the church of the resurrection because he has love big enough for anyone and a fellowship big enough for everyone, and that means you and you and you. Will you join his church today? the church of the resurrection. You may want to unite with some other local church that's just a branch of the church of the resurrection. We'll help you do that. But what you join really when you join this church is not Trinity Baptist. You're really joining the church of the resurrection. That is God's great lesson. God's great vocabulary. Love.